0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So question for you. uh, When you think about our great city of Chicago, what comes to mind? You you, you You might think of the food, right? We are a foodie city. We are filled with incredible restaurants and all God's people in Chicago land said amen. You might think of the lakefront and the parks, or Wrigley Field, like packed with people on a, a Thursday or Friday afternoon. Maybe we're going to play too. You might think of uh, the museums. Right, we are blessed with world-renowned museums: history museum, science museum, art museum. Point being, you're thinking about places to go. But then, when you talk to someone who might live further away from Chicago, what do you think they think about the city? See, they might say something about the cost, right? Everything is more expensive the closer in you get. They might say something about the corruption. They'd be like, isn't it called Crook County? <laughs> they might think about the crime, the violence. It's on the news, it seems like, every night. They're thinking about a place to avoid. But what if I told you about this friend of mine? He, he's great. He, uh, he's, he's an incredible cook. And uh, to the point that, like, I don't think I have ever said no to an invitation to dinner at his house, it, to the point that I've actually just invited myself over for dinner sometimes. And we'll sit out on his patio in the summer just talking, and he'll, he'll share, we'll talk about culture, he'll share about all the things he's seen as he's traveled the world, and, like, it's no secret that my friend, uh, he's done some shady things financially. Whether or not he crossed the line, I don't know. And it's allowed his family to live this lavish lifestyle that they lead. But it's also been a, it's also been a rather traumatic life. Uh, held at gunpoint. Um, he, he got mixed up with drugs He's been shot multiple times. He's, he's shown me the wounds. He's told me the stories. And the thing is, is he continues to be blamed for the violence inflicted upon him as though everything was always his fault. And, and not just that, but it's, it's always made public. It, every story he's experienced, it's on the news for all to see. See, when we describe Chicago as a place this inanimate object, this impersonal thing where nameless, faceless, disconnected people live, uh, it's easy for us to distance ourselves from the suffering that exists, isn't it? That's down there. But what if we viewed Chicago as a person? A living, breathing human being, uh, an intimate, living, interconnected being, one capable of experiencing a wide range of emotions and expressing those emotions, right? It starts to give names and faces to the stories that draws us into the story and allows us to be bothered by the brokenness that exists in our city. That's the power of personification, a a literary tool that the poet uses in the poems that make up the Book of Lamentations that we're going through, poems that tell the story not of a place, but of a person. Telling her story, the story of a woman named Jerusalem, telling the story of her sin and telling the story of the suffering brought about by her sin. Poems that were performed by the Jewish people each year as a ceremony on the day of Tisha B'Av as they fasted and as they lamented destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the city or the temple in Jerusalem and the city in 587 BC at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, making the poems of Lamentations a a liturgy of lament. Liturgy being a work of the people, something that we do together, something done in community that points us to God and in this case helps us learn how to lament and why. Why? this is the liturgy that we are using to guide us through this season of Lent, a season in the church's liturgical calendar, right, this lived remembrance of the life of Christ entered into by us as the body of Christ, a season of reflection as we reflect on on the depth of our own sin and the brokenness of the world that we live in, and a season of repentance, repenting of our own sin and our lack of concern for the suffering of others, of how we at times have turned our eyes and closed our ears to the cries of those who are suffering. We began this Liturgy of Lament last week in the first poem, uh, Crying Out to God. And there are two speakers in this poem, as you noticed this morning, with Alvin and Jenny. There's the poet, uh, the narrator, believed to be um, the prophet Jeremiah, describing what it is that he saw and what it is that he heard. The other speaker being Jerusalem herself, Uh, the personification of this once great city, expressing what it is that she is feeling, right? One speaking about Jerusalem, the other speaking as Jerusalem. And last week in the first half of the poem, we heard the poet describe what it is that he saw. He saw her fall from greatness, leaving her not only feeling ashamed, but also alone. And we saw how her suffering resulted from her own sin, and I pointed this out last week, and I want to make sure I point it out again this morning. The point and the purpose of the poet's personification is not to project the sin of Jerusalem onto women. That is not what this is about. It is about projecting the humanity of a woman onto the city of Jerusalem. He is not making a statement about women. Instead, he is telling a story about a city and of her suffering. He describes what he saw, but he also describes what he heard, hearing Jerusalem cry out to God, not once, but twice in the opening half of this poem, pleading with God to to listen, to hear her cry, and, and to look, to see her suffering, and yet, not just in the first half of the poem, not just in this poem, but throughout this entire book, God says nothing, God does nothing. He does not speak, he does not act. And that leads us to the second half of the poem this morning where Jerusalem herself, she continues speaking, pouring out her heart, expressing what it is she's feeling, crying out to God. And she begins by expressing her sorrow. She's expressing her sorrow. I love how she's not not shoving it down, but letting it out. She's she's aware of what it is she is feeling. She is acknowledging her sorrow rather than skipping past it. And she's sharing what she's feeling with others rather than keeping it hidden. See, she's hoping that someone will come to her and comfort her and do what God apparently refuses to do. Thinking God is, is unwilling to see her suffering, that he's too busy to care, she then turned to these random strangers that are passing by. And she cries out to them here in verse 12. She says, does my suffering mean nothing to you? She's like, how are you able to just keep going and keep walking by as though nothing has happened to me? It's like someone's standing on the side of the road after a horrific accident. And what happens is people drive by, but they, they slow down. They slow down to look, not because they care, but simply because they're curious. They just wanna see. Not look, just see. Or it could be like the story that Jesus tells in Luke 10 of a a Jewish man who had been mugged and robbed and beaten and left half dead along the side of the road only to have a priest and a Levite come along and they so very clearly see his suffering. They hear him crying out and so... Both of them, Jesus says, they go out of their way not to approach the man, but to avoid him. They did not allow themselves to be bothered by the brokenness. And if we don't allow ourselves to be bothered by the brokenness, we'll never bother to lament the brokenness that exists. And so she pleads again. She says, stop, stop. Even if just for a moment, don't drive slow, stop. Look at me and what's happened to me and see. See if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. See, has anyone ever suffered the way that I am suffering? Because to her, nothing could compare to the trauma that she had experienced, the, the pain that she was feeling physically and emotionally. It was incomparable. Nothing could compare to it. It was beyond anything she had ever witnessed or experienced. It was immeasurable. It, it did not register on that scale of one to 10 that you see in the doctor's office. There was no emoji for what she was feeling. And I think we can relate to that. We can relate. And mind you, I'm not talking about when you get a hangnail. I'm not talking about when you get a paper cut and you're like, is this nothing to you? Look. Look and see my hangnail. I have no clippers with which to clip it with. Now, mind you, if you have a cardboard paper cut, that's a whole nother beast. You have my permission to full-on wail. There's paper cuts, and then there's cardboard paper cuts. I'm not talking about when you're lying in bed and your body, your body is aching. The chills are overwhelming and you ask if there is any sorrow like my sorrow and the fever that has infected me only to take your temperature and see that you are a perfect 98.6. No, I'm talking about that time you lost a child and had a miscarriage. Or when you brought home that colicky newborn and the sleepless nights seemed like they would never end. I'm talking about the emotional pain of receiving that cancer diagnosis or the physical pain of the chemotherapy. I'm talking about the trauma you experienced in the past that continues to haunt you this very day. That is pain and suffering that feels incomparable and immeasurable, isn't it? And like Jerusalem, we we tend to compare our suffering with others, don't we? I mean, even by me simply providing examples of suffering, you were already likely inherently doing it, thinking one of two things, thinking either, my suffering's nothing like that, or thinking I have suffered way worse than that. I would have given anything to trade what I had for that. And when we, when we compare our suffering with others, it leads us to one of two responses. Sometimes it leads us to apologizing, for our suffering, minimizing our own suffering, especially when we are around those that we think have it worse than us. Remember when we brought our uh, boys home from the hospital, when they were little people, uh, and people found out we had not one, but two newborns at the same time, they would always, without fail, downplay their own experience with their children. They were, they were assuming, like, there's no way one could compare it to two, And while to some extent they were right, they were also very wrong. Because they still experienced what they experienced. They didn't need to apologize for that. Because while they might not know what it's like to have two newborns, we didn't know what it was like to have a newborn and then have a toddler at home waiting for you when you got home. Or we didn't know what it was like when you brought number three home and you had to switch from a man to man to his own defense and all of a sudden, it's two versus three and you're hanging on. Grandma, grandpa, grandma and grandpa, both grandmas and grandpas, whoever, you're calling up the JV team for support right there. That came out wrong, grandmas and grandpas are not the JV team. They're the the alumni. That wasn't in my notes, I'm just gonna apologize right now. Grandparents, do I have your forgiveness? Uh, the, the AI translator in my ear said yes, <laughs> heard yes, okay. Ooh, boy, stick to your notes, Ash. But we do, we apologize for our suffering, don't we? But not only that, um, it can also lead to anger. And it leads to anger when we minimize the suffering of others in comparison to ours, especially those that we think don't have it as bad as us. And it's like we're all of a sudden playing a game of Texas Hold'em and they make a bit of stage two cancer and you're like, I see you're two and I raise you two, stage four, try and compete with that. Minimizing your own suffering, it causes you to hide your suffering from others and it keeps people away who, who want to care for you because you're feeling as though you're not worthy of their care. You're not deserving of comfort. You, you don't want to be a bother. It's not that bad. Someone else has it worse. You keep people away when you minimize your own suffering, and when you minimize the suffering of others, it causes you to be angry at others, and it pushes people away who want to care for you. You're angry at those who don't appreciate the depth of your suffering, think you don't know what it's like when all they want to do is come in and enter in with you and learn what it's like. And the worst part is you get angry at those who are suffering because you don't think they have it as bad as you and they're not worthy of the care and comfort you think you're deserving of. Suffering is not a contest. It is not a competition. There is no need to compare your suffering to anyone else's. There are no winners and losers in this. In fact, we all lose when we minimize anyone's suffering, be it our own or that of someone else. All it does is further isolate us and left us feeling more alone in our suffering. And for Jerusalem, she, she, she felt sorrow, but her sorrow, it not only stemmed from her suffering, but also from her shame. Knowing, she says, that her suffering, it was brought upon her by God. She knows what the poet acknowledged last week. She knows that the Lord inflicted this on me and that it was out of his fierce anger. And feeling though, as though she finally has someone to listen, even if it's a a perfect stranger, even if it's somewhat reluctantly, she goes on to describe her suffering to these passers-by of how God on high, he sent fire down into my bones. She's feeling God's judgment in the very core of her being. God, he he says, she says, he he spread a net. He, He trapped her with nowhere to go but one direction. And that direction is back. He turned me back, turning her back to him, facing the one that she had sinned against. And it left her stunned. It left her faint. It left her weak. Eugene Peterson writing in the message, he left me with nothing. He stripped it all away. He left me sick, even sick of living. She was made to feel the weight of her sin and suffering the consequences for her sin by God. And she was carrying the weight like a, like a yoke attached to the neck of, a, of an oxen, only this yoke was fastened to her neck and it was fastened to her neck by God. And the weight of her sin, she acknowledges, was more than she could bear. It was causing her strength to fail, and she was angry about it. She was angry at God, and she yells, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Weakened by this prolonged siege of the city that lasted some 30 months, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they finally attacked the city, they decimated it everything destroyed, nothing left untouched. And her weak and starving soldiers, her once mighty men, they didn't stand a chance. She says, he summoned an army against me to break my young men. As though she's attempting to gain some sympathy here by drawing attention to their lack of experience and claiming this was, this was never a fair fight. Right, this was like the JV team scrimmage in the varsity. They never stood a chance And on top of that, the varsity team paid off the rest. Man, the thing was rigged the whole time. And she says it resulted in a literal bloodbath. She says the soldiers, they were trodden like grapes in a wine press, grapes crushed by the hand of God, rivers of blood flowing down the streets of this decimated city. And her suffering And that of her people was all brought about by the hand of God. All because of her sin against God. When we live in a way counter to the way God has created and called us to live, it will lead to suffering. It'll lead to your own suffering, suffering the consequences for your sin, and it will lead to the suffering of others. Suffering because of what you have done or not done. And yet, as we saw last week, we need to remember that while all suffering is the result of sin, not all suffering is the result of your own sin. That make sense? Not all suffering is the result of your own sin. You won't always suffer because of something you did. You may suffer because of something done to you, because of the sin of others committed against you, or simply the mere presence of sin. This poison that has infected every aspect of creation. And that's not only true of your suffering, that is true of the suffering of others, of other individuals and of other groups of people. And what we know in the entirety of Scripture, God doesn't always stay silent, God speaks. And we know God God doesn't want that for you, for me, for us, for anyone. And so there will be times in your life where God's gonna step in God's gonna intervene. And He's gonna get your attention. Sometimes softly, sometimes more aggressively, as is the case here. You're gonna feel the weight of your sin in a new way at times. You will be overcome with remorse. And that remorse, God willing, leads to repentance, to turning from your sin and turning back to God. But there will be pain in the meantime. And in spite of all that she suffered physically, you know what was most painful for Jerusalem was the way she suffered emotionally and relationally. She, she, felt, she felt all alone as she mourns her abandonment. She says, for these things I weep. This is why my eyes flow with tears. It wasn't the pain, it wasn't the hunger, it wasn't the fire raining down, it wasn't the fear of death. No, what broke her, what brought her to her knees and brought her to tears was that she was left all alone. She was suffering alone. She says, for a comforter is far from me. No one one will sit with me. No one will put their arm around me. No one will listen to me. There's, There's no shoulder to cry on. There's none to revive my spirit. All they do is mock me and blame me and run from me. Now sometimes we suffer alone by choice. Maybe not consciously, but subconsciously we suffer alone by choice sometimes overcome with such anger thinking no one understands we just push everybody away without even knowing it and other times overcome with shame keeping people away hoping they never know what happened sometimes we suffer alone by choice but other times we suffer alone not because nobody knows but because it feels like no one cares Jerusalem felt abandoned. She felt abandoned by God. She felt, who refused to listen and look, at least she thinks. She felt abandoned by her own people. Some of them fled, some of them were slaughtered, some of them were taken into exile. She felt abandoned by the nations that she had allied herself with, that had turned on her. She even felt abandoned by these random strangers who passed by, who slowed down for a bit, and then they kept on walking. Isn't rejection the greatest pain of all? That feeling of abandonment, the feeling of being left all alone as though no one cares? See, what makes suffering unbearable isn't just the physical pain, but the emotional pain of suffering alone and being made to feel as though your suffering is your own fault. Being made to feel like you did this to yourself. Being made to feel like your suffering doesn't matter. It is not worthy of my time for care or comfort. Get back to me when you're at a seven. Until then, don't call. Which leads to being made to feel as though you don't matter. Can we agree no one should ever have to suffer alone? Amen? Amen? And can we add an asterisk on there that that's regardless of the reason why they suffer? Whether they're suffering because of something they did, does that mean they shouldn't have a comforter? A comforter to stand with them as they face the consequences? Again, comforter, not covering up. And that's true of sin committed against them. That's true of just the mere presence of sin in the broken world we live in. No one should have to suffer alone, and that requires us to do something. That requires us to open our eyes to the suffering that exists in the world around us, listening to the cries of those who suffer and seeing them as fellow human beings created in the image of God and loved by God. You've heard me say um, the phrase, love is not an emotion you feel, but a choice that you make and an action that you take. I've said it at every wedding I've ever done, said it in any sermon where we talk about love. We talked about that in our series, The Measure of Maturity, at the beginning of the year. It's a choice that you make and an action you take for the sake of others, for the good of others. And you know, I think the same is true of lament, that lament is not just an emotion you feel It's not depression and anxiety and darkness. It is a choice that you make and an action that you take for the sake of others. And here's what that means. It means everything might be going great for you right now. Like, praise God, the literal sun is shining today. But like the sun just might be shining on you. You feel like 24-7, 365 right now. And praise God for that. Share some of that. But even in the midst of that, you are still able to lament because there's still suffering in the world and there's still sin in your heart. Both of those things remain true until Jesus comes back. You're able to be grateful for the blessings in your life and at the same time allow yourself to be bothered by the brokenness in the world. Does that make sense? Lament is not an emotion you feel. It is a choice you make and an action that you take for the sake of others. Choosing to see the brokenness that exists rather than turning your eyes and hearing the cries rather than closing your ears and choosing to be bothered by the brokenness and taking action. And what we see is that the poet, he, he chose to Look to see her suffering and to listen, hearing her cry and allowing himself to be bothered by her brokenness. And what's interesting is all that we've seen and heard so far, what bothered him the most is probably the only thing more heartbreaking than hearing Sarah McLachlan singing Angel as you watch pictures of abused and abandoned puppies. Yeah, oh, you, in the arms of, it'd be way better if Lauren sang it. Do you know what's worse than that? It's hearing the cry of a helpless mother and seeing the suffering of innocent children. If that doesn't break you, nothing will. And if you think, nah, I'm good, go, go to the Children's Florida Cancer Hospital. Walk through that. Go through the NICU. Look at the parents looking through the glass. She says, My children are desolate. They have no hope for a future. For the enemy has prevailed. I don't know exactly how she was reading at this point, but I gotta think that she's almost out of breath. They've got nothing left. And it's almost as if the poet he senses a pause because he he can't stay quiet anymore. He he interrupts Jerusalem and, and He doesn't interrupt to condemn her or to correct her. He interrupts to begin to comfort her. He he sees her anguish. Like she, she says, her hands are stretched out. She's pleading with God in prayer. He sees her anguish. He sees her abandonment, that there's no one to comfort her. All of her former neighbors, her former lovers, her former friends are now her foes and her enemies. And he says, they're avoiding her the way that you would avoid a used menstrual rag. And his words, as brief as they are, offer just enough comfort for her to continue as she acknowledges her guilt. She acknowledges her sin, right, that the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against his word. I, we have not lived in the way God created and called us to live as his people. She acknowledges her sin and she acknowledges her suffering suffering that in her case was brought about by her sin. She says, hear all you peoples and see my suffering and let it be a lesson to you. Learn from this. She doesn't hide it, she shares it. And yet all of this, it's leaving her with no hope for the future. It's leaving her with no one to care for her. She says her young men and women, they've been taken into captivity, taken into exile. No one to protect her calling out to her lovers, these nations she had allied herself with, but they deceive me. And leaving her with no one to guide her, my priests and my elders have perished. They starved in the siege. Her reflection has led to remorse and her remorse has led to repentance, turning from her sin and turning to God. And as she turns to God, she pleads her case, she makes her plea, her request, asking God to act again for the third time. She says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress, I am sick to my stomach, I am physically ill just thinking about this, and my heart is broken, my heart is broken because of my sin, because I have been very rebellious against you, God. My heart is broken because of the damage that my sin has done. It has left my people slaughtered outside the city and slowly starving inside their homes, she says. And now I'm left all alone with no one to comfort me. Everyone is dead, everyone is gone, everyone has been taken away, everyone has turned on me. And those I once trusted, those that I once considered friends, they've heard my groaning. They've heard my groaning from across their borders. They they saw my suffering. They had a front row seat to see everything that you did, and they're glad about it. They've rejoiced over what you've done to me. And here's her request. Here's where the end of this poem feels very much like a psalm of lament. She says, now unleash your wrath on them the way you did on me. Let it be as I am. See all the evil that they've done, and deal with them as you dealt with me. But hurry, God, because my groans are many, and my heart is faint, and I don't know how much longer I can fight. She's not asking permission to carry out vengeance. She's asking God to execute justice. She's asking for the punishment of all sin and the eradication of all suffering and evil. She's asking for the very same thing we are asking for, isn't she? And so what does God want from us as we end this first poem? I think he wants from us exactly what he wanted from Jerusalem, what he's always wanted of his people. Ever since sin fractured our world, this poison infected creation, God wants us to be bothered by the brokenness both our own and that of our world. He wants us to be bothered by our own brokenness, by the sin that exists in our lives and the suffering that it causes. He wants us to see our sin for what it is, rebellion against God, repeated rebellion, going against the way he has created and called us to live, having done the things he told us not to do, things that God knew were damaging to us, to others, to all of creation, and for having not done the things that he commanded us to do, things that he knows are good for us, He he wants us to feel the weight of our sin, seeing the suffering that it brings to ourselves and to others. And he wants us to turn from our sin and turn back to him. Our remorse leading to our repentance again and again and again, without limit, without hesitation, allowing Jesus to bear the weight of the sin that we are unable to bear as the one who took on our sin who knew no sin every sin, knowing that by his wounds, the blood he shed, the death he died, we are healed and we are forgiven and we are comforted by his spirit within us. God wants us to be bothered by our own brokenness and he wants us to be bothered by the brokenness of the world and the suffering that exists all around us. He wants us to see the suffering brought about by sin, seeing the suffering and hearing the cries He wants us to come to him and to cry out on their behalf, demanding that he look and that he see the suffering, even though we already know he does. Henry Nouwen, in his book, Turn My Morning Into Dancing, writes that suffering invites us to place our hurts in larger hands. When the weight is too much to bear, we give it to someone who is stronger, to bear it for us. And so what God wants is he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust that he is working even when we don't see it, even when we don't believe it. Working to relieve the suffering that exists, working in and through us as the hands and feet of Jesus, and one day eradicating all suffering through the return of Jesus. God wants us to be bothered By the brokenness, or else we will never be bothered to lament the brokenness. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.